0: You support Diffusion by downloading a free book from Audible. Audible will sponsor Diffusion for everyone who signs up to the free 30-day trial and downloads the free book of their choice from audibletrial.com science. Or look for the donate button on www.diffusionradio.com to contribute to the costs of producing the podcast. Sit back and relax while we inject weird and wonderful science directly into your brain. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition, galactic halos light up walls. But first, here's the news. Vibrating plants defend themselves. Heidi Apple and Rex Cockroft, at the University of Missouri, have discovered that a plant related to cabbage and mustard released extra repellent mustard oil when it was played the sounds of caterpillars munching on its leaves, but not in response to other sounds at the same frequencies. A traditional contact microphone would have been too heavy on the tiny leaves and changed the signal. Instead, they recorded sound using a laser microphone and a reflective piece of material attached to the leaf. To play the sound back, they attach tiny piezoelectric speakers to the leaves with wax. In a piezoelectric actuator, an electric signal makes a crystal expand and contract to reproduce sound. In response to being chewed on, the plants produce glucosinolates, which are bitter or spicy tasting, and anthocyanins, which make things red. In the first experiment, they played a recording of a typical two-hour feeding session to some plants and silence to others. They then allowed caterpillars to eat a third of three leaves around each plant. After giving the plants one or two days to respond, they harvested the leaves for chemical analysis. They found spicier mustard oil with more glucosinolates in the leaves of the plants that had been played back the chewing sounds. The amount of glucosinolate was higher when the vibrations were louder. Of course they only compared sounds with no sounds and all the plants were munched on. So in the next experiments, they narrowed things down. A second experiment tested whether any vibrations, not just chewing sounds, would stimulate a defensive response. This time they looked for changes in anthocyanin and found an increase only when it was chewing noises, not wind or a leafhopper mating song. The wind vibrations were recorded by directing a small fan on a similar plant and recording the leaf vibrations. The leafhopper mating song was chosen because it has a similar frequency spectrum to the chewing noises, but a different pattern. They also tested whether the leaves released protective substances when no caterpillars chewed on them after playback. However, the extra anthocyanin was only released when the leaves on plants that had heard the chewing vibration playback were chewed on themselves by real caterpillars. This means that the leaves were primed by the sounds, ready to release anthocyanins to repel insects. And researchers are left thinking that either the vibrations from the leaves spread throughout the plant and vibrated the other leaves enough for them to show this effect, or else the vibrated leaves signal to the rest of the plant by an electrical or chemical signal, possibly an airborne chemical signal. Further research will establish how the signaling happens. The paper was titled Plants Respond to Leaf Vibrations Caused by Insect Herbivore Chewing and was published in the journal Ecologia so plants can be primed to better repel the next insects that take a bite by being played chewing sounds. If a tree is munched in the forest, maybe other plants can hear and get ready. Leaf munching sounds were courtesy of videographer Roger Meissen from the University of Missouri. Vitamin deficiency from heartburn drugs. If you suffer from heartburn or gastric reflux disease, the acid from your stomach rises and burns your throat. As well as being unpleasant, it can lead to laryngitis, trigger asthma attacks, and over the long term, cause the throat cancer known as Barrett's oesophagus. Most medications treat reflux disease by reducing the acidity of the stomach, so that when it rises up to your throat, it doesn't burn as much. Unfortunately, a new study shows that lowering the stomach's natural acidity can prevent you from absorbing all of the vitamin B12 in your food, leading to a deficiency. The vitamin B12 deficiency symptoms can be worse than the original reflux. Most reflux medications are proton pump inhibitors such as Nexium, Prilosec, Losec and so on. Others can be histamine 2 receptor antagonists like Zantac. Both these kinds of drugs can lead to vitamin B12 deficiency. The study at Kaiser Permanente Involved nearly 26,000 people who were found to have had a vitamin B12 deficiency between 1997 and 2011. And compared them with 184,000 patients without vitamin B12 deficiency in the same period. They found that people who took acid-lowering drugs for over two years had a 65% higher chance of developing a vitamin B12 deficiency. Higher doses of proton pump inhibitors were also correlated with a vitamin B12 deficiency there was a much lower risk of deficiency associated with the histamine 2 receptor antagonists, like Zantac. The link between taking acid-suppressing medication and vitamin B12 deficiency was strongest in adults under 30 years old. People suffering severe headaches are given medications that can cause reflux as a side effect. They're often prescribed heartburn medications that can then go on to cause vitamin B12 deficiency. Vegetarians are at risk of vitamin B12 deficiency, because humans can't easily get enough B12 without eating meat, dairy or eggs. Most vegetarians need to take a monthly vitamin B12 supplement pill made from bacteria. Vitamin B12 deficiency is a serious condition, which in extreme cases can be fatal. Vitamin B12 can present symptoms of exhaustion, memory problems, depression, tingling, weakness, dizziness, headaches, anemia, constipation, nausea and many other symptoms. Red and white blood cell production drops when there's not enough vitamin B12, leading to anemia and a weakened immune system. The fatty insulation on nerve cells wears away without replacement, causing short circuits in the nervous system and the brain, with symptoms that look like multiple sclerosis. If you have such a cluster of symptoms, it's worth asking your doctor for a vitamin B12 blood test. When you stop taking the drugs, there's often a rebound effect causing severe attacks of reflux which leads people to think they need to return to the drugs, when sometimes they don't. However, don't stop taking reflux medicine without consulting your doctor. Your doctor can assess whether you need to reduce, withdraw, replace, or keep taking the medication. Vitamin B12 is absorbed from food by a substance called intrinsic factor, produced by the cells lining your stomach. In pernicious anemia, the immune system has attacked these cells, perhaps as friendly fire, during a stomach infection and stop them producing intrinsic factor. This means that people suffering pernicious anemia can't absorb vitamin B12 from food or from supplement pills. Instead, they need an injection of vitamin B12 into their bloodstream on a regular basis. Pernicious anemia is diagnosed both by symptoms and blood tests. The blood test will show both the vitamin B12 deficiency and antibodies to intrinsic factor. If you're diagnosed with a vitamin B12 deficiency and are given an injection of vitamin B12, you start to feel enormously better almost immediately and very good several minutes later. Researchers are hoping to replace acid-reducing drugs with treatments that prevent the release of acid into the throat in the first place. The paper was titled Proton Pump Inhibitor and Histamine 2 Receptor Antagonist Use and Vitamin B12 Deficiency and was published in the Journal of the American Medical Association. You're listening to Ian Wolf on Diffusion Science Radio. Send emails to science at diffusionradio.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. Vanessa Moss is soon to be a postdoc at the University of Sydney, affiliated with the Centre for All-Sky Astrophysics, Castro. She works on the structure of galaxies, particularly the interaction between the disks and halos of galaxies. Vanessa has just completed her PhD thesis with CSIRO Astronomy and Space Science.
3: So my thesis was focused on the topic of the galactic ecosystem. So that's with a capital G. Because during my thesis, I focused on the Milky Way, our home galaxy. Uh, And so if you think of an ecosystem, then the way it applies to galaxies is, you know, we have this balance between outflow. So this is energetic events in the disk of a galaxy, uh, supernovae. And you also have infall, which is due to interactions with other galaxies and the intergalactic environment surrounding our galaxy. And so those two forces interact with each other and balance. And you want to know which is more dominant. What we see like when we look up at the halo surrounding our galaxy, is it mostly made up of outflow? So has our galaxy produced the signatures we see there or is it because of infall? Is it accreting material that's coming in from outside? So my thesis was focused on outflow in the form of a super shell, so a giant structure in neutral hydrogen and also trying to tell the difference between signatures of outflow and infall when we look up at the halo of our galaxy.
0: So the outfall, these the shells you're talking about, where do they come from?
3: So supernova remnants are when really high mass stars, uh, they reach you know the end of their life and they can't fuse higher than iron. So they have typically core collapse. And so the outer layers of the star collapse onto it and trigger this supernova explosion. That's kind of how we usually describe it. You can also get lots of these big stars kind of living together in the same neighbourhood and the effect of multiple generations of stars going supernova has the effect of making like a big hole in a galaxy, like a big cavity, um, like a balloony sort of thing where you push out the gas surrounding. And so super shells are thought to be formed from multiple supernovae, so in one kind of localised region.
0: And for the infalling, what sort of material is coming into the galaxy?
3: There's various things, but typically what we're talking about is hydrogen. So this is the primary fuel for galaxies to continue to form stars. Uh, So I've been studying neutral hydrogen, which is, you know, pretty fundamental. It's like unionised, energetic, just floating around, being hydrogen, being cool. And um, so in, in my case, we're looking at the signatures of hydrogen coming in from outside.
0: And you're doing this research both here at the ARC Centre of Excellence for All-Sky Astrophysics and also at CSIRO. Uh,
3: yeah, so for my PhD, I was affiliated both with the University of Sydney, so here at, in Sydney, <laughs> and um, also uh, with CSIRO, Astronomy and Space Science, out at Marsfield. Uh, and then I'm going to be transitioning into a postdoc, uh, and that's going to be with Castro, which is... The center of excellence for sky astrophysics.
0: What sort of instruments are you using to get all this data to find out what's happening in the halo around the galaxy?
3: So I've been using radio telescopes which are super cool. Uh, (laughs) So uh, a lot of people you know often think when we do astronomy we look up at the sky and we're talking about optical you know what we see with our eyes but you know the electromagnetic spectrum is huge and so in Australia we've always been really strong in radio astronomy we've been pioneers in radio astronomy uh, particularly in the southern hemisphere because Australia is in the south And so I've been using, so the the bulk of my PhD was using data from the Parkes Galactic All-Sky Survey, which was conducted by my supervisor at CSIRO, Naomi McClure Griffiths, and that was, you know, that was data that existed. And then following up different clouds and trying to find out more about their properties has been done with the Australia Telescope Compact Array in Narrabri, uh, which is instead of like one big dish like Parkes is, it's a series of six smaller dishes that talk to each other and effectively make a bigger dish.
0: And will the square kilometre array affect your work when it's built?
3: Yeah, I mean, so, you know, both the square kilometre array itself and its precursor, ASCAP, the uh, Australian Square Kilometre Array Pathfinder, they'll be really important for, you know, galactic studies. One of the limitations is, you know, if you want to study the halo and you want to look at, you know, really, we're looking, talking quite faint things, you know, clouds that are not super bright, they're not part of the bulk of the galaxy, so they're f- quite faint. If you want to try and study the faint gas on a large scale, the integration time, so the time you need to spend looking at particular regions is a long time. So with ASCAP and with a square kilometre Array, I mean, it doesn't change the fact that you need to look for a fairly long time. Well, it sort of does because you have the combination of dishes. But what you really also get is the field of view. So instead of, you know, with parks, we're dealing with a quarter of a degree on the sky. With a compact array, it's like, you know, a 60th of a degree, so smaller and smaller things. With ASCAP, we're going to have, you know, five five 5.5 by 5.5 degrees. So you're seeing this huge part of the sky at once, which means you can start to see what's happening on larger scales in the halo. So that'll be really important. And also for the work I'm going to be doing with Castro, ASCAP is a huge deal. The survey that I'm going to be working on is called FLASH. I'm I'm going to be working with the FLASH team. That stands for the first large absorption survey of H1. I was trying to think of it because I thought it was this H1 survey and then that's like FLAS and that doesn't sound very cool. <laughs> so <laughs> anyway, so it's FLASH and that's actually really exploiting the wide fields of view that ASCAP has to offer. So you're looking, instead of at our galaxy, you're looking at galaxies much, much further back in time to try and see what their neutral hydrogen content looks like. And you don't necessarily know if you're going to detect the absorption signal. So by having the wide field of view, you can survey many more galaxies at once. So you can you know, have a really good chance of detecting large numbers of absorbing galaxies at high redshift.
0: And what inspired you in the first place to, to look into this?
3: Uh, do you mean to be in astronomy? Uh, that's a good question. <laughs> so, I mean, I'm not one of those people that say, you know, I looked through a telescope when I was five and saw Jupiter, I was like, oh. But, you know, I guess from a young age, I was always really interested in science. You know, just my parents took me to observatories and science museums and I always really enjoyed science and thought it was a really cool thing. In high school like I never really liked physics when it was back at the wedges and pulley stage but uh at the later part of high school I had a, a teacher Kevin Marnie and he was like an amazing physics teacher he made it fun he made it interesting and he made it relevant and that had a huge influence on me deciding to do physics at university uh, not astronomy at that point but just physics in general. And then when I was in first year, I had the opportunity to do some research with Anne Green and Tara Murphy, who are actually still here, I see them quite a bit. And um, that was on multi-wavelength astronomy. And I just enjoyed it so much, and they were so enthusiastic, and they made it so interesting, and they were really encouraging, and it just like, made me want to do, or at least think about doing research at a higher level. And then I stayed in astronomy because it's a pretty awesome, you know, you get to ask really important big questions about the universe, where we came from, where we're going, and you get to use really cool telescopes to do it, so that's pretty fun. Uh, but yeah, I mean, all kinds of science are really interesting to me, but I do find astronomy to be very enjoyable and to be asking really interesting questions.
0: And you've also worked at Sydney Observatory.
3: Yeah, so I'm, I'm a guide Sydney Observatory. I've been working there for the last, I guess, couple of years actually been really great uh, <laughs> it was uh, it's kind of a random thing you know I was getting I was I don't know maybe two years into my PhD and they were advertising for guides and uh, I thought this will be really cool because you know as a as a researcher as a PhD student and even further you do get some chances to interact with the public to do outreach but not you know not all the time and not in the context where you have a, a whole bunch of people that are really interested in astronomy and want to learn more about it and so I really love doing tours there because for one, you've got... Very rarely do people come to Sydney Observatory without an interest in astronomy. So, you know, they're really... They always want to learn more and they have really great questions. I love the questions that people ask. And it's actually... It's also a really good opportunity to talk about radio astronomy because a lot of people don't have as much awareness about radio astronomy as other kinds, you know, optical astronomy. And, you know, a lot of people don't know what a big role Australia is going to play in the square kilometre array, for example, in the future. So it's cool.
0: <laughs> Um, What are some of the questions you've most enjoyed that they've asked you?
3: So, I mean, one of the questions that comes around a lot is the question of life, you know, life in our galaxy, life in the universe, because, you know, it's one of the things we tend to think about, you know, what if there's another human race at a star far away or, you know, not humans, but some sort of carbon-based life form. So that's, that's a really interesting question because you can talk about statistically that it's probable that there's life, but then, you know, SETI's been listening for a while, so why haven't we detected those kind of signals and just, you know, talk through the Drake equation, you know, how many stars there are in our galaxy? And I think the big limitation that people sometimes don't appreciate and they like like talking about is the communication. So, you know, the delay in light travel time. Even if we found some sort of evidence of a higher species that could communicate technologically at Alpha Centauri, if we send, you know, hello to them, it takes four point four years to get there, they send hello back, and so you've got you know you've got these huge time periods in human time scales and i think that's actually a really interesting thing to get people to think about because our galaxy is tiny compared to the universe and even then we're dealing with huge distances to our nearest star system other than the sun i always get (laughs) people always call me out on that (laughs) but um but yeah so so that's one question um sometimes you know you you get really interesting questions like why do we do astronomy you know you why why do we do science? Why do we ask questions that don't necessarily lead to some measurable consumable output? Um, and so, you know, there's there's various ways you can approach that. You know, you can talk about the serendipitous kind of parts of science. You know, if there's a lot of the huge world changing things have come about, not because people set out and said, Okay, let's let's invent Wi-Fi, let's invent the internet, but from people, you know, that were asking some other scientific question, and develop tools along the way that helps them to answer that question so for example Wi-Fi was from CSIRO, or CSIRO and it was radio astronomers that developed that and you know now it's, it's a huge part of our, of our lives and no one predicted that no one said let's make Wi-Fi so that, that's one thing is that you know by asking scientific questions that don't necessarily lead to measurable output you do advanced technology, you create new things along the way, but the the other thing is like just our our society is a better place because you know when we learn new things, when we help you know to understand the world around us, at big scales, small scales, all kinds of scales, like universe scales, microscopic scales, you start to I guess build a better picture of where we fit into this kind of universe that we live in and I think just knowledge for the sake of knowledge sake to help I said sake twice anyway (laughs) knowledge for the sake of knowledge is still super important and you shouldn't just be trying to measure science based on its outcomes it's also about it's about the other things you know it's about outreach it's about if someone's captured by the idea of you know black holes spinning around each other and crashing into each other and producing gravitational waves maybe one day that person will become a scientist and you know do something completely different, but have been captured by the imagination of that that notion of some scientific field that they don't necessarily end up in. So I think, yeah, I think being able to communicate that with the public and see what their general view of science and astronomy is, is really rewarding.
0: So Vanessa, what's next for you in terms of astronomy?
3: Um, so from July onwards, I'm going to be working with Elaine Sadler and the FLASH team to you know, start this H1 absorption survey to get involved with you know, when you look at these very distant galaxies and measure their H1 content, the neutral hydrogen content, what does that tell you about the evolution of galaxies over large timescales? Uh, what can we say about how we got to where we are today? So that's that's going to be what I'm, I'll be working on uh, after this. And that I'm really excited to be starting that. That'll be really cool. Uh, and otherwise, I mean, I'm, I'm going to keep working at Sydney Observatory and keep up my connections there because I've learned so much just about, you know, how how to communicate astronomy, um, how to talk to the general public, how to talk in front of people. That's not necessarily something that you tend to be very good at as a a scientist, stereotypically anyway. I know a lot of people that are really good at talking, but yeah, so you know, just keeping that connection and outreach and education. I'm definitely very interested to also be involved with seeing where science is going in Australia, what the future of science is going to be, and to be involved with helping to shape that in a positive way, so it'll be good.
0: Vanessa Moss, thank you very much.
3: Thanks very much for having me. That
0: was Vanessa Moss, an astronomer at the University of Sydney, affiliated with the Centre for All Sky Astrophysics, CASTRO. Check org for more. DocBot this month featured people who make art by projecting light onto buildings, including Sydney's recent Vivid Festival. Presenting was Rory Mackay, a light artist with Optic Soup a collective of artists in Sydney.
1: We've just got a projector and an iPad hooked up to each other, just trying some things out, putting some lights up, having some fun, getting people to draw things on the wall.
0: So you're projecting onto the wall? Yeah. And you're getting people to draw directly on the iPad?
1: Yeah, yeah, it's just uh, simply working things out because we do some live shows um, where it's normally us behind the computer, making visuals, and people always come up and say, how do you do it? And... Give them a spiel, but normally they're not too interested, and uh, we think it'll be much better to hand them an iPad, let them have a draw and a play, and do something cool that then they're interacting with the visuals on the screens.
0: So what sort of things are people drawing? Is it just simple finger drawing, or, or what, what sort of things have you got?
1: Uh, at the moment, like uh, it's just finger drawing, but in the future we're going to have geometric shapes coming out, lots of particle effects, using lots of natural textures, so... Uh, we take photos of leaves and water and all sorts of different things. So then using them in our, in our VJing software, which is called VDMX, and then um, you, editing, editing what they're drawing to make it even more interesting.
0: And what sort of places do you show? I mean, you're here at Dorkbot, but where else do you project your stuff?
1: Lots of parties and events. I like to run around Marrickville and do some uh, fun little warehouses there, but we also do like outdoor festivals, music festivals bars and clubs anything really anything where it's dark and there's a space that we can shine some lights yeah it really transforms the space so it's a lot of fun
0: so if people want to try projecting what do you recommend they start with
1: just just go and go and uh, find find a cheap project it doesn't need to be any good but just Throw it somewhere and and see what you can do. Make some make some clips yourself. Grab a camera and film some things that you look interesting, or have a try at making um, some stuff in Blender. And yeah, there's software you can use called VDMX or Resolume, There's a whole bunch of different stuff. If you hop online, there's like subreddits called VJing. Like there's a Facebook group, VJ uh, Union, and it's just everyone's helping out each other. So just have a look on there and. Yeah, have a play and get into it.
0: Do you have a website where people can find more of what you do online?
1: Uh, yeah, my website's rorymckay.net. Yeah.
0: <laughs> so, so how do you spell that?
1: Uh, R-O-R-Y-M-C-K-A-Y dot net. Yeah.
0: Awesome. Well, thank you very much. Thanks heaps. Yeah. That was Rory Mackay, a light artist with Optic Soup. You can find him online at rorymckay.net. And that's all from us this week on Diffusion. Would you like to join us? We need more people contributing stories to Diffusion. You can send your contributions, opinions, congratulations, standing ovations, gasps of amazement, and helpful suggestions to science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com. And please do send me an email so I know you're listening and you'd like to hear more episodes. Please like the Diffusion Science Radio page on Facebook and rate us on iTunes. Checking production this week was Charles Willock. I produce Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia on the Community Radio Network and to Triple H in Hornsby-Karingai. Diffusion is syndicated on the National Science Foundation's Science360 internet radio station. Subscribe to our podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com That's www.diffusionradio.com And check the website for videos from the stories in this week's show. You can now hear Diffusion on Stitcher, radio on demand and on the go. Download the free app from stitcher.net and review Diffusion. Ask your local radio station to broadcast Diffusion. If you'd like to support Diffusion, please find the PayPal button on www.diffusionradio.com and make a donation to help cover the costs of production. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science
2: Radio. Science is fun. It helps you to learn, to know, and to appreciate. When you study science, you may go on field trips. You discover the marvelous interrelationships between all living things. You learn to read the history of the earth as it is written in rocks and fossils. You find out what makes things tick, everything from a molecule to a living organism.